G'day and thanks for joining us for this week's Two Ticks Town Talk, a segment of the Australia Talks podcast. I'm DK. And I'm RD. Please enjoy this segment from the regular podcast. Okay, this week let's have a little bit of a paddle through history and visit the town of Akorowa on the banks of the Murray River. Uh, Korowa, it's a town in the state of New South Wales. It's on the bank of the Murray River, which is um, the border, most of the border between New South Wales and Victoria, uh, opposite the Victorian town of Wagunia. So if you look on the Australian map and uh, like the, uh, what they call the political maps, where it shows the divisions of uh, the states and wonder why Victoria is such a uh, a, a wobbly, one, one of the very few uh, states that don't have a, a straight line, it's because it's a river. Uh, not a lot of factoids about uh, Korowa, uh, two appealing ones. The Korowa Bowling Club was used to film scenes for the 2002 film Cracker Jack. That's hard. <laughs> Mick Malloy and Judith Lucy. You re- do you remember that one? I do, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, look, you know, not not exactly the height of cinema, cinema <laughs> but it was, it, was, it, no. it was funny enough and it was a good, uh, good story based around a, a, a bowls club. Uh, so, look, if you, you're interested, it's a very sort of uh, laid-back Australian type movie, straightforward story. Um, yeah, it's one of those ones that's a bit of fun where you don't really have to well, I suppose you don't have to think. <laughs> I don't think there's anything really deep about it. No. Uh, the oh, other one. Gosh, I haven't seen it in a long time, though. So ages. <laughs> I think I, I. I think I can't remember if I've only seen it once or. or yeah, twice. no, I've definitely only seen it once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one was uh, Ford's punt. F double O R D. So John Ford, uh, known as the Emperor of Wagunia. Uh, set on the Murray River near the Ovens Junction, that was on the the southern side of the the river, in the early 40s. And in 43, Ford and a man named Bould examined the the countryside around the present side of of Wagunia and recommended it to a bloke, uh, John Crisp, who was the first European to settle in the area. Uh, Crisp later sold it to Ford, and with the development of steamer transport on the Murray River in the mid-1850s, Ford purchased a punt which was bought to uh, Wagunia by the steamer Leichhardt. Uh, he, Ford built two extensive warehouses, uh, which he let to river navigation companies, and because there was so much, attracted to, so much traffic attracted to Ford's punt, it led to the establishment of Korowa Township opposite um, Wagunia, as we said. That was the information about Ford's punt that caught my eye and setting it up, which led to this choice. And what caught my eye was uh, Frank Ford locking in on the newly developing industry of the Murray River paddle steamers. Now, with our Two Ticks Town Talk, we often talk about road tracks and train lines and their early impact on Australia. But for this, I wanted to move off land and onto rivers and go on a bit of a journey with the Murray River paddle steamers so as the river murray uh 
longest river in Australia, two and a half thousand k's, which is about fifteen hundred miles. And the tributaries which come off include five of the next six longest rivers in Australia: the Murrumbidgee, Darling, Lachlan, Warrego, and Paru. Uh, so together with that of the the Murray, the catchments of this river form the Murray-Darling Basin, which is which covers about one seventh the area of Australia, and it's widely considered one of Australia's most important irrigated regions. Um, one seventh that was that was roughly about the size of the Great Artesian Basin, something one seventh, one sixth. Uh, it was wasn't it? it was it was one fifth, I think. Yeah, one fifth. Oh, okay, yeah. so so not quite so, that big, but still still bloody big. Very important though. Yeah, both yeah. both are very important. Bloody oath. Uh, Murray rises in the Australian Alps, drains on the west hand side, and uh, scoots along uh, towards South Australia and forms that um, that border between New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, it was first navigated in fifty, not in eighteen fifty-three, by uh, William Cruss, Russell and Francis Cadell, because there was a South Australian uh, competition. They were giving away two thousand uh, pounds to open up the Murray as a waterway. Huh. So yeah, once they navigated and said, "Oh, yep, we can give it a crack. Looks like we can do something with this." Uh, from then on, there's a whole lot of paddle steamers began travelling inland with stores and passengers. So they'd take out stores and passengers down the uh, uh, the river and come back to Port Leyden with, with wool. Um, the steamers which came to trade along the inland rivers, they were actually an Australian design and about uh, 300 were built of local red gum. So yeah, I suppose that was a design of the the era, but because of well, I suppose it's Hollywood and stuff like that. I t- had always tended to associate, you know, paddle steamers with uh, American rivers. Yeah, but uh, yeah, didn't know that we had the the Australian design ones uh, over here. And yeah, built of red gum, so that's a good bit of wood. Yeah, that uh, is. That would look really pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they were they were an important connection to the early European settlements and development of that uh, riverland. They built them flat bottomed uh, with a broad beam for, like for, for for greater stability. They usually had uh, two or or more decks, and were propelled by steam engines driving the the paddles either at the back or uh, more often than not they had uh, the paddles on either side. So to increase their carrying capacity for for taking goods downstream and bringing uh, them back, they'd often tow barges, um, put the wool, sheepskin, hides, tallow and timber, etc., onto the barges. Uh, That was a skilled job, as you'd imagine, because up to Mm. 2,000 bales of wool were often carried, stacked in the hull, Piled wow. several tiers above the deck. Wow! Yeah, and then there was a bloke on top standing on a makeshift wooden platform with uh, an enormous hind helm that was connected to the rudder by ropes and chains. Oh my <laughs> goodness! <laughs> That's how HNS approved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That poor bugger's up there, uh, just swaying back and forth, trying to. Well, I mean, there was probably other people keeping. Um, 
keeping watch and things, but I can't imagine that was uh, a work experience job, first off. <laughs> <laughs> and like all like all good things, there was there's regulations in place to ensure that the steamers must stop at night. But uh, really, few of them uh, few of them did. Most of them didn't tie up uh, before ten thirty. And if there's a full moon, a whole lot of them would just keep travelling um, through the night anyway, as you as you would expect. Uh, the steamers navigated the sandbanks. If they were small ones, they'd just get up to full sl- speed. And rush just, like, it. <laughs> and just slide over the top. Bloody oath. So <laughs> the, the shallow ones, they'd do that. If it was uh, large ones, they'd, they'd have to winch themselves across and look because of the seasonal variation in the river height um they could only really operate for about eight months of the year and sometimes the levels uh just fell so quickly that uh barges and steamers would get trapped in pools uh sometimes for months and also too when the rivers were in in flood um the Vessels could paddle any, almost anywhere, but sometimes they'd get lost. And then when the because you know familiar landmarks just sort of didn't um, it didn't appear, so sometimes <laughs> sometimes when the floods went down, you'd find uh, boats a couple of miles left high oh. and dry after the floods receded, <laughs> just, <laughs> just in a field. <laughs> um. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, there was uh, looking at this. It was interesting. Uh, there in the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney, they got an in, they've got an artifact, uh, which is a navigation map used by the the captains on um, one of the Murray's tributaries, the the Darling River, uh, in the in the late eighties between eighteen seventy eighteen ninety. The river courses, the landmarks, the woolsheds, hotels, mills, and homesteads uh, from Wentworth to Menindee in New South Wales, are hand-drawn with notes about rocks and dangerous areas. And I thought this was a bit clever, and I imagine it was pretty groovy in the day. Uh, the charts made of heavy sailcloth measures 39 metres in length, and it's mounted on rollers, which was wound on as each section of the river was passed. That's actually I, pretty cool. Isn't it? I th- yeah. I thought you'd like that. I know with like your old your, your school sort of GPS, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right, and that you could write those little notes on it. Um, yeah, I thought that I thought that was pretty. Uh, I thought it was pretty groovy. So, yeah, I, I imagine that would be extremely valuable, and just the idea of having like these thirty nine meters worth of stuff, and you know, just sort of rolling it. It just uh, it sounded like an elegant solution. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because yeah. you sort of need that granularity to know, because yes. the river's obviously changing all the time. So it, from from season to season, or even from week to week, it could be you know different parts of the of the river system can be completely different. Yeah, ex- exactly right. And you know, you, you're probably also going to go past uh, somewhere, and you'll find out from somebody or. Oh, Remember that big old uh, river red gum that we've been looking at the last couple of months, saying that's going to go any uh, fall over any time. Well, it fell over. So when you're at you know Baz's Bend, uh, watch out for it because it's somewhere under the water. 
because that was uh, that was a problem for them. The because the water was so muddy, uh, you couldn't see the snags. So the, yeah, yeah, the government would would send down uh, little ships with like really high powered motors and uh, equipment to to pull out snags and that because obviously they wanted to keep the paddle steamers going because that kept the uh, trade going, the trade going kept the money going, and the money going kept the uh, the government going. So, yeah, that was uh, yeah. I thought it was interesting, interesting uh, little uh, little artifact. Uh, also worth remembering that uh, large steam engines mean large pressure pressurized vessels. So aside from the snags created by the fallen trees, sandbars, dangerous currents and incorrectly loaded barges capsizing, there's also the danger of boilers exploding if there's not enough attention paid to them. Uh, (laughs) Why do I feel like I know where this is going? (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler, it doesn't go anywhere well. (laughs) But but when I was reading about that, there was just so much about uh, treating uh, the right amount of of heat, the right amount of water in there. There were so many things to watch that I thought, well, no wonder you have something such as the wreck of the Providence. Now, this is... uh, this was one of this. Uh, the Providence was a famous incident of the time. Uh, so this is from an article in a newspaper, uh, the South Australian Register, from November twenty first, eighteen seventy two. The Providence left Menindee on November nine, going down steam. Sorry, going downstream, wool loaded. Shortly after she came to for firewood, and while lying at the bank, the water got low in the boiler. When they started again, the engines did not appear to work very well, so they stopped them. Immediately they did so, the boiler exploded and went clean out of the boat, striking a tree on the other side of the bank and then rolling into the river. The boat's bottom or sides must have been blown out as she sank immediately, a small part of the stern being only visible about a foot above the water. There were four men killed, the captain, engineer and two deckhands, while another man had his leg broken in two or three places and that bloke who had his leg broken was apparently blown to the other side of the um the bank as well so geez yeah it's like i suppose like sitting on a bomb um, yeah yeah ouch yeah <laughs> now in addition to goods being transported there were also paddle steamers that plied the murray with religious messages and services for remote believers and potential converts, and they were known as missionary boats. Uh, there was a few of them from several Christian denominations, but one of the well-known ones of the time were the two Etona, E-T-O-N-A, um, boats, uh, which, as you'll find here in a moment, got the name from uh, Eton College. Uh, in 1891, a steam launch appeared. Uh, sorry, a steam launch transported a Church of England chaplain to provide services for settlers living along the River, river Murray. The launch, originally known as the Patroller, when the South Australian police had used it to uh, keep an eye on uh, what was going on, was purchased by the Bishop uh, George Kenyon. Uh, 
using funds collected from his old school Eton College. Hence, the boat was renamed Etona. Uh, by 1899, with mission work increasing, it needed major repairs and was sold off. So a new Etona, a paddle, paddle steamer, was built at Maleng of West Australian Jarrah. Again, would have been a nice-looking boat. Got that. Yeah. They certainly used some nice wood. Oh, they didn't skimp. I guess there was a lot of it around, so they just kind of used what they had, but it's prized yeah, timber these days. term, you think, yeah. oh, wow, that would just be beautiful. It's prized timber, like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so build it, uh, where are we? Uh, build it Maling of West Australian Jarrah with galvanised steel side tops. And it had a chapel on board, a small galley, saloon, and four bunks, and uh, uh, was, was dedicated by a priest in charge of the River Murray mission. So it was 60 foot long, 12 foot beam, um, and the holds four foot six inches deep. While she draws only two foot of water, being just half of what the old boat required to travel in. So that's not... A very shallow draft, yeah. Really think that's the that's the, the word. So they would hold, they'd scootle on down the, the river. Uh, they'd hold services in the small chapel. Um, they, they did about uh, where are we? eight trips uh, a year. They'd conduct baptisms, confirmations, marriages. Um, and also one of the uh, people involved that she began a, a mother's union with communication by letters. So the mothers, because the mothers couldn't meet any other uh, way, and they'd then get, even though the settlers and that were poor, they'd give the uh, ship, ship gifts of firewood, bread, and milk. And uh, it <laughs> it was just it was just an interesting service to. Um, to the locals and to the people who uh, were, were looking for that that's that spiritual side. Well, I mean, you need nourishment for your body, right? Yeah. I guess they looked at it as they needed nourishment for their souls. So, one hundred. Yep. Yep. Exactly. E- exactly right. Uh, so that went on for a while. By nineteen twelve, a uh, number of settlements had built their own church churches. Um, or used a school for, for churches, uh, sorry, used a school for services. Um, parish priests then, by that time, were appointed, and there's not really much of a, a need for a travelling minister along the River Murray. So the Atona was sold in 1912 to uh, Arch Connor, who used her as a fishing boat until 1944, it was then abandoned on the banks of the Murray Murrumbidgee River, where it became a chicken house. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like such a waste. <laughs> it does, but that was the fate of a whole lot of um, <clears throat> the steamers and barges. Uh, so that wasn't the only decline. But by the first uh, decade of twentieth century, the river trade was rapidly disappearing because. The roads and rails, as we mentioned in the beginning, uh, were becoming uh, better service. More and more steamers and barges were just tied up at the riverbank waiting for work, which didn't came, come, and they were just abandoned and left to rot. And by the 1930s, there were only about 30 paddle steamers still in service, 
and by 1960s, the trade was completely finished. So, as you can imagine, there's you know, little um, tourism sites and that that you can see them, particularly around uh, Korowa, which was one of the areas that uh, was was notable for being so involved in this this trade. But like all things, technology moved on. Korowa uh, is still there, but the paddle steamers aren't. And that's our two ticks town talk for this week. That's cool. Yeah, we do. Uh, in my mind, I always associate paddle steamers with America going up the Mississippi River and they're opening up. Uh, mm. You know, the interior using paddle steamers and things like that up the river, the river boats and all that sort of stuff. I guess there's a lot of there's a sort of a lot of folklore and, and mythos around that in in American uh, history. Um, I didn't realize it was so big here in Australia as well. So that's kind of cool. Did I. Yeah. And it makes yeah, it sense because the Murray, the Murray is so long because <laughs> the Murray, if I'm correct, exits like near Adelaide or something, doesn't it? It meets the sea. It goes Greatest a long way before. It, yeah. yeah. It, it goes a long way before it gets to the sea. I didn't um, know it was that long either. I, I mean, once I was reading, I was thinking, oh, I sort of in the back of my head. But if you had sat me down and said, okay, guess and tell me where it was i wouldn't have come close to that yeah no yeah so it's 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 such a long way so you can see how because you know this area of victoria new south wales is really the food bowl of of australia Mm. um it's all all really farmland out there except for the the occasional spot of national park and that Um, but when you look at it on a map it's just like a patchwork of, of farm farmland um so it makes sense you know that you'd need that transport corridor and it just it completely makes sense to use the river uh, at least you know during those periods um today though it would be really inconvenient because of course we've got highways everywhere rail lines and things like that so um <laughs> yeah. a more di- a more direct route but um, well that's that's right i suppose that's why that that era has has gone but when you also include those um major tributaries that were mentioned you know like the the darling and uh was it Mur- murrumbidgee and paru and warrigo uh i think there's another one there i can't remember and you think how long they are i think it said something like five of the next six biggest yeah. six six longest ones it covers a lot of area it does yeah i think most of victoria really you probably could have got a paddle steamer to somewhere close by and i wonder if that's why like certain cities in victoria like shepparton and and albury and there's a few others are so big and and they are where they are because they're beside the rivers because the steamers could probably get there and things like that so it's probably shaped a lot more of victorians history than people probably even realize in new south wales i mean yeah some of the um God, what was it like they even they would even be getting um wool from Burke um and bring it bring it back by paddle steamer sorry taking it up I think to uh to, to Burke by paddle steamer so yeah you know, it covered a lot of ground a lot of Victoria uh New South Wales and uh the, that bit of South Australia yeah so yeah it's a significant uh, it was a significant um, significant system, but yeah, it, look, there was more in that that I just didn't know at all. 
So yeah, I thought that was pretty pretty interesting to hear about about that. So thank you, Coral, for giving a little bit of a a launching pad for another another interesting bit of Australia. Mm.